you're tuned in to the Creative Dive Podcast, and I'm your host, Renee Leanne. Join us as we dive into the creative lives of artists, musicians, and people working in the arts to find the hidden gems in their stories and experiences. So today on the podcast, I am talking to Carolyn Yardley. So Carolyn is a multidisciplinarian artist, and she is a painter, and she does sculpture, interdisciplinary uh, mediums, and I think she has a very interesting career and artistic journey. So thank you so much for being here today, Carolyn. Thank you really very much for having me and congratulations on this podcast. Oh, thanks. That's so nice. Um, So maybe we can just start by you telling us a little bit about how you got started as an artist. Um, Sure. Well, when I get asked that question, which I guess I've been asked a couple of times before, I always think uh, to myself, anything I've ever really done in my life has always been making or building or um, creating and doing things with my hands or using powers for creativity. And um, so many years ago, I did, uh, um, I was in the fine art department at the University of Victoria for an undergrad, and I did a double major in art history and psychology history and art, I think they called it at the time, maybe. And, um, and then the web got invented and uh, it created a new platform for design professionals uh, to uh, be able to create and build and think and work in that dimension. So I guess I always think of myself having always been an artist. Um, I may have called myself a creative director at one time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then um, being really immersed in the, I guess, traditional arts. Um, I don't even know if there is anything that's traditional art anymore, but um, mm. I, moving from, I guess, a more of a web-based sort of um, practice and graphic and uh, programming and things like that. So I, I found myself um, teaching myself to paint in the evening when I went home from work. So that was really sort of like a beginning where I would work all day in the office and then I'd come home and I'd paint all night. And I took a few evening art classes as well too to refresh myself. And then I actually did two weeks. I went and uh, did a two week course in Santa Fe. Oh, wow to uh, experience um, how to paint in like a realist style because I was really interested in how that um, worked, how that, mm-hmm. how people did that. I thought that was really interesting. And now I understand it's really just practice. Sticks <laughs> 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 time um, if you're interested in it. And um, it was also the first time that I had worked with oil paints. Oh, wow. And I decided I really liked that as, a, as my beginning, my entry into, I guess, fine art back a return to fine art was in oil painting. Okay and so when you were doing that type of work and you're just getting started and learning how to paint in oil paint 
what were you, what was your subject matter then? Like, what were you painting back then? Well, I've stayed true to the squirrel. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So maybe for the listeners that don't know you or what you do, I would describe your art as realism and almost science fiction, but you have coined a term for realism. Maybe you can just tell us about how um, you got started in that, what kind of piqued your interest with squirrels and how you ended up coining this term. So it began really um, early on. So I moved to a place that had a small garden at the same time that I had really was having experiencing in a career change and rescued a dying squirrel in the yard. And so it was really an incredible experience of this uh, almost a molecular transfer, I would say. And it really obviously has changed the course of my life in many ways, where I became compelled to paint portraits of hybrid human squirrels in an effort to document my alliance toward the squirrel. And so the term really happened organically over time with people asking me, you know, what is this artwork you're doing? Why, why are you doing, you know, hybrid humans and what do you call it? And it was actually um, Ellen Manning owned the apartment gallery mm-hmm. and she and I were talking because there was a show coming up and she said, we were throwing around words and she said, it's like squirrel, squirrelism. And I, and then I turned to her, I said, no, it's squirrelism. <laughs> so she's definitely had a hand in helping coin that this, which I now is a, a neologism <laughs> that I use to uh, describe, I guess, the artwork that I do, but it's also a work in progress. So what started off originally as talking about and also led me down the path of researching the biology, in particular of the Eastern gray squirrel, which is an introduced squirrel to this area. And this area, um, that I work in is uh, on the traditional territories um, of the Lekwungen people known today as the Squimalt and the Songhees nations. And uh, this squirrel was introduced by a farmer in Machosan, um, a settler, white settler farmer in Machosan in 1966. It's really sort of, it's been a word in progress because now it's really, um, it's, talking about the boundaries between human and non-human systems. And it really does imagine uh, possible futures in hybrid human development. And, uh, and I guess it's also meaning or starting to mean narrating origin stories of transformation and in a way sort of portraying this um, kind of utopian dystopian future. Cause I'm now working in assemblages as well too with, uh, with the squirrel. And so it is, definitely a word in progress. So what was your journey like transitioning into a full-time artist? Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Um, well, it's been, I think, a long transition, it seems like, and I think that that's not unusual in terms of uh, people finding their way. Um, you know, I had a quite a long overlap uh, between being in technology and working at that and also starting to paint and exploring uh, the different things I was interested in 
so it was really, it's really been, I guess it's been 10 full years now that I've been in fine art. I would say that there was a really long overlap of at least maybe four years, five years, perhaps. Um, so, and then I returned to school as well too, because I had been in school such a long time ago, I didn't really have any critical theory in mm. terms of, um, well, I did, I did have critical theory in terms of the work and the collaborations that um, I've been involved with, with Randy Cook. And mm-hmm. so he's really, um, you know, been part of my, my learning in terms of indigenous sort of ways of thinking and knowing and that kind of thing. So I really wanted to expand on looking and thinking and digging in deeper, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, with that, so I would say I'm still, <laughs> I would say I'm still in transition, <laughs> to be honest. So maybe you can tell us a little about that collaboration uh, with Randy Cook and how that came about and what results came from that. Well, it started, um, we met, I guess, in the late 2013. He uh, was in a show called Urban Thunderbirds, Ravens in a Material World at the Art Gallery of Greater Victoria with... Um, Les Sly, Francis Dick, Dylan Thomas. I had through you actually, our connection was, I was on the arts uh, sales and rental side. It was about people who worked in technology as artists who also did traditional work. And so we both had work in the same building at the same time. And we had both seen each other's work. And then we were invited to do a show and it was riffing off of a Gerard Richter painting. And that's where I met Randy. And so he invited me to visit his studio. And when I went, he asked me if I would paint him in his traditional regalia as a squirrel. Um, oh, wow. He was really interested in my work in that human hybrid and that shape-shifting. And uh, unbeknownst to me at the time, reminded work had reminded him of the story of squirrel and thunderbird as told by george hunt in 1899 where uh the squirrel in that story is a shapeshifter who i believe changes from being the sisutal that's being chased by a thunderbird by the thunderbird okay (laughs) into a squirrel (laughs) wow so you did this collaboration together and can you tell me a little bit about the work that that you both did was that the collaboration you painting him in the regalia we actually I actually gifted that painting to him and he gifted me a carved um, hand carved and painted cedar mask of a squirrel and from there invited me to do a show at the Alcheringa gallery which was called ravenous and it was secrets of the squirrel mask and the trickster raven and so there were several pieces in that show that were looking at transformation and just different stories, new stories, really, in a way, new stories of transformation. So it sounds like your work with Randy Cook uh, was really informative and really helped to influence some of your more current work. So you are currently working on completing your Master's of Fine Art at Emily Carr in Vancouver. 
So maybe you can just tell us a little bit about what that's been like for you going back to school after an extended period of being self-taught and working on art in your own way and what you've decided to focus on in this um, new endeavor of yours. Well, going back after um, a fairly long period of time, again, um, a lot of people who have moved through uh, recently, I say a four-year degree program in fine art and then into a master's program, they've had that really recent four years of, um, and Emily Carr is an academic, an art academic institution. So in that regard, um, four years of thinking critically about things that are um, happening today and also reading authors and scholars or, you know, writers that are um, speaking and talking today, as opposed to years ago where there was a lot of, a lot of material produced by dead white guys. Mm-hmm. And so being able to go back now, I think has really been hugely beneficial. And again, um, because I have had such a big uh, gap, I personally feel very hungry. Mm, yeah (laughs) I'm trying to read and eat and um, as much as I can and also digest and the people that I'm in the program with maybe not as long as me but have had a a gap in between their undergrad and in some cases in one case doesn't have an undergrad oh wow as well too Mm -hmm. so based on experience wow so that must be a really interesting part of um of being involved in your master's program is being able to connect with other artists that are maybe on a similar journey in some ways or some some ways maybe completely different. I just wanted to take a moment to pause this episode and let you know about a little ebook I created that some of you might be interested in. Maybe you're working in the arts and you're curious about how to access grant funding to help fund your artistic work. I've created the mini guide to grant writing that outlines the process in writing grant applications in an easy step-by-step format. It's free to download and you can find the link in the show notes. It's called the mini guide to grant writing. Now back to the show. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about your current artistic practice and what kind of techniques you're focusing on right now and if COVID has influenced that aspect of uh, your work? Yeah, well, when I started there, um, one of the first um, things I decided not to do was not to paint. So I decided Mm. to work in a different medium, which is why I was there as well too, because I wanted to do multi-component work. So I focus on human-animal relations in an urban environment. I'm also looking at the settler colonial present and working on how we get to know a space and the relationships, I guess, therein. So what I've been doing is um, I've been working with human hair and so discarded materials, discarded human materials. So human hair. And also I've been doing a lot of walking in my practice. So I've been collecting detritus that falls from trees whether it be leaves or leaf skeletons, depending on the kind of time of year. And it's turning out to be very seasonal as well, too. I also incorporated some anthropogenic materials. So I started picking up plastic, you know, bottle caps or a lighter. And I started finding all kinds of different things like pink flagging tape if I walked through a construction zone. And uh, then when COVID 
happened, I really sort of then brought it even closer back to the garden again, like back to being at home. And of course, this is where the urban animals, this is where my, all of the work comes from is being inspired through these relationships of being uh, with each other every day and seeing each other every day. We have a deer path that goes through the bottom of the, the garden. You know, we're only 12 minutes away from downtown Victoria and um, we're completely surrounded by these wonderful urban animals who cause an incredible amount of um, political grief. <laughs> they do locally, yes. <laughs> people here who are angry about their capitalism being destroyed through their gardens being eaten or right. um, car and bike accidents and concern about viruses and disease through uh, deer poo, mm -hmm. even though uh, those same folks probably are not concerned about dog poo. And it's fascinating how, um, in particular, like, I guess settlers look at how space is shared. I'm digging in deeper on that. So um, they say learning in public is, <laughs> is, you know, it can be embarrassing. So at the same time, not worrying about everything that I say as well, too, and just being more comfortable with talking about those kinds of uh you know, parameters, those kinds of boundaries, looking at those kinds of things. So again, the work is really focused on urban animals in an environment. Um, it goes back to uh, the indigenous black-tailed deer, the native black-tailed deer that's lived here in this area for thousands of years, which um, in one of the municipalities uh, close to Victoria is as uh, tags. They have ear tags and neck tags. So there's some fact-based research that's going on to determine exactly the population count of the black-tailed deer. And so I'm just really interested in um, following that research. So based on their research, they discovered that there's 100 black-tailed deer in the municipality of Oak Bay compared to 18,000 residents there. And um, many people feel that they're being overrun by deer. <laughs> so I find that really interesting, the perception of what overrun actually means. Well, it sounds like you're really, yeah, you're really exploring deeply these, these mindsets that colonialism has made a mindset for um, so many different people in so many ways, and then sort of linking that to what people's immediate environment is and how we're, on one hand, really destructive to the environment as human beings, but then really um, unwilling to put up with any destruction from, from a wild animal at the same time. So it's a really interesting hypocrisy that uh, it sounds like you're exploring within your artwork and your practice. Well, yeah, and I think as density and development continues, and as we move out into the natural landscape, uh, we're going to be looking at a lot more of these kinds of uh, interactions. And definitely. So in terms of your work and, you know, where it's being shown and how it's being sold, because, you know, we do live in this capitalistic society and art, you know, is uh, viewed within that as well as separate from that sometimes. But what has been your journey with being able to gain gallery representation to show and sell your work. How did that process come about for you? Well, I threw my first, my own first art show <laughs> in a restaurant. Oh, really? 
Yeah. So the Black Olive, I used to go there occasionally. And so I got to know the owner there. And um, and so I had sort of like an opening night or an opening hour or whatever. Yeah. And so that was really like how I started. And I sold a whole lot of pieces out of that show. And then I had another show that I um, did at Ferris's upstairs, you know, because I did have a, bit, a business background, right? Um, I had an email newsletter and I had business cards and I started implementing all the things that um, I did from all the hard learning and the relationship building. Mm-hmm. I would say the, the relationships and the face-to-face and getting to know people was really how I um, was fortunate enough to be invited into different spaces. I also have to thank Randy as well because it was um, our relationship that he introduced me to Letitia in Vancouver at the Fazakas Gallery. So it was because of him that, well, that I got into the Alcharinka Gallery and then I was also at the Fazakas Gallery. So right again, relationships and collaborations, mm-hmm. I think is probably a story that many people have found. Definitely. And you're also, um, your work is represented now by Madrona Gallery in Victoria as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so was that a similar kind of, thing where you had a relationship with somebody that referred you or um, how did that um, particular gallery representation come about? I've known Michael and Teresa for years through the art world yeah because I'd been going to their gallery to their openings I think I was also had been invited to do group show there. And your work I would say is quite different from um, most of the work that Madrona Um, is showing I mean your work is quite different from most of the work that most galleries are showing because it does really have this unique and distinctive style and so in terms of giving advice to emerging artists that are starting out in terms of finding sort of a niche or like a really distinctive style or focus like what kind of advice would you give an emerging artist in terms of in terms of that well commercially speaking um i guess there's two two routes right um there's the route where um let's say in toronto i heard that you have to have an mfa to be in a toronto gallery Mm. so i mean i have to have to mention that because that's what people have that's what people say that's what they talk about (laughs) That's right. what the gallery. That's what the gallery owners say. Okay. So, um, is that something that you could ever overcome with uh, finding a niche? I don't know, but I think finding your own story, I think, is really important. And I think that that was what really helped me is that I had a story that found me, mm-hmm. and I found it, and I worked with my story. And I dug into it and I kept exploring it and I didn't let it go, even though a lot of people laughed (laughs) and thought that squirrels are frivolous, which that's just terrible the way to think. (laughs) But um, I didn't turn my back (laughs) on this. (laughs) And I helped also create the story by um, posting things as well too, right? So if you also help create and write the story, and help guide people to what you're thinking. I think that really, really helps as well too. I can tell you that like um, when you're about to say do a show, right? Because a lot of these galleries are mom and pop shops. They're not 
these huge, well-funded that I'm aware of or that I have been experiencing. They're not, you know, they don't have all this heavy funding. And so being able to write an overview about your show or, or your work or even contacting some of the different um, writers or news articles, some of that legwork could ought to be done yourself. Yeah, putting in the work to be able to promote your own work and having, you know, a wide variety of skills beyond just the artwork, which obviously takes a lot of skill and process and years of practice, but being able to write press releases and represent yourself well and not just assume that, you know, the gallery is going to do everything for you, I guess is what you're saying. Absolutely. And in terms of your new work that you're working on that's involving like human hair and discarded objects that you're finding outside, can you tell us a little bit about what some of those projects end up looking like or how you're assembling them or just sort of the artistic process behind these assemblages that you're creating? Yeah, so I started with a, spin, a drop spindle and I, start, I was gifted hair by several of my friends because I couldn't make enough of my own hair. <laughs> and I was originally collecting it out of the shower. It originally started from like trying not to go down the drain and I had this gigantic bundle of hair. And then I um, was actually read Julie Andreev's um, manifesto of how to um, be thinking about working with different materials other than animal materials, even though I obviously... <laughs> <laughs> it's a natural fit. But... Yeah, obviously, obviously I didn't stick to that entirely. But so I started making paintbrushes with my own hair and I made a needle felted squirrel mask out of my own human hair. Um, I'd also been uh, working uh, another project with Randy Cook and one of his nieces had uh, given him her hair. And so he'd been using a... Um, her hair and a mask as well too. So there's a little bit of thinking about like how you can combine uh, human hair and, and that type of thing. I actually uh, rented a spinning wheel because wow. I was gifted a giant pile of hair and I, I spun it. I turned it into um, like thread and I knitted human hair wow. now. And, and uh, most recently um, because of the blue plastic gloves that were being discarded into the recycling bins, Outside, I was collecting that and I was wrapping that around twigs, but a lot of it is human hair, twigs, branches, and the detritus that people throw away um, mm -hmm. by just wrapping it, tying it, a little bit of glue, sometimes gluing it. <laughs> trying to like, um, trying to reuse materials right now. That was also my other goal with uh, doing this MFA was that I didn't have to buy anything. I just wanted to be able to find materials to think through thoughts. <laughs> and so has that been a challenge for you figuring out how to showcase these new assemblaged pieces in a gallery or in an exhibition setting? Was that something that um, was a challenge for you to figure out how to show them? Uh, no, the, the first series that I did, which were um, the human hair and the like a seagull feather and um, a little bit of squirrel hair that I'd been gifted and everything. They hung up perfectly on the wall with pins and they ended up looking sort of like specimens. So that was really kind of interesting. Oh, cool. And then acorns hanging down and everything like that. And then um, the next uh, set that I made, which was like um, things you find in the garden, like those tree protectors and fur and all that, uh, those actually went on the wall perfectly fine as well too. And I started hanging things from the ceiling but it wasn't until I guess uh, COVID that I brought, I wanted to do standalone sculptures. So I ended up doing, uh, I created something called the Pandemic Sculpture Garden, 
And so oh, wow. they were outdoor sculptures. In your yard? They were in the yard, yes. But because of the materials that they had, which were some um, used plastic gloves and things like that, I actually like disassembled them as well too because the deer and the squirrels were coming and investigating as visitors because um, that's their territory. So they were coming through and looking at all the work, which I got some really interesting responses and photographs of them just being like, what is this? I have to tell you a side story that really quick. Okay. So there was a, um, I had a bucket and it was like a, a whiskey bucket that had been cut in half, made out of wood and it was being used as a planter. So I actually um, also had, uh, had a squirrel um, tail from the road. Anyways, so... I put it in there and I was kind of just thinking through things and I left it outside for a bit and uh, a squirrel came along. He ha had, um, I know, he came up to the bucket and I was like, oh no. And he gently stroked the tail and I was like, what is happening right now? And he sniffed it like, so he grabbed the tail and he inhaled the tail and just deeply breathed. And I was like, oh shit <laughs> what is happening I hope it's not Frank yeah. <laughs> like, That's and uh, I know and so it was a really powerful moment for me and then wow. um, this squirrel actually buried a nut in the tail and then that squirrel left and then another squirrel came up and I was like oh no here we go and that squirrel stole the nut <laughs> so that squirrel was just like who cares about the tail just give me the food well I don't know because I wasn't sure if there was some kind of I don't know what the traditional ritual was I'm not sure what was going on and I wasn't sure if that actually was what was happening so anyway it was just a really incredible moment <laughs> no kidding well weird yeah, you have um, a lot of really interesting stories, I think, about the uh, the animals in your yard. Well, and they've informed your practice so much. I mean, like you said, you've um, you basically had this moment where you saved a dying squirrel and it like, you know, passed on its like squirrel powers to you and you've kind of taken them and used them to your advantage with your artistic endeavors. So it's a really interesting uh, narrative that you even have just with that so yeah I guess is my final question you've already provided you know a lot of insight and wisdom into your art career and the academic process and gallery representation but is there any other advice that you could give to emerging artists who want to really focus on art as their full-time career and they maybe just don't know how to start or what to focus on? Is there any advice you could give? I would say that um, taking out a, a piece of paper and starting to write um, the things that are really meaningful and thoughtful and also paying attention to the environment. So as you're wandering around, let it speak to you. Um, there'll be things and messages that are coming, coming to you from um, the ether, from the dark matter, from the... <laughs> from the shadows, I guess, and um, try to keep your ears open for that. I know that that is not exactly like concrete um, business advice, but in a way it actually is because you have to listen to your intuition and you have to believe in yourself as well too about that. And then there's the whole other side of 
which you're, you know, knowledgeable about the grants and all of that kind of thing. But you've got to find the story that you are really impassioned about and you've got to dig in and be in it for a really long, the long haul, wherever it takes you. That's great advice. And, and I, I definitely agree with that, that no matter, you know, what you're doing in your artistic career, whether you're applying to school, you're applying for exhibitions, you're applying for grants, all of those things require artists to really get clear on what their story is, why they're making the work that they're making and, you know, why they're passionate about it. And not worrying that it doesn't look perfect at the beginning or that it seems not deep at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Just got to keep going because it's going to, it's going to transform and change over time. Definitely. It's, it's a journey more than just an end goal with the art world. So yeah, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today and sharing your story with everybody. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing what work comes out of your MFA and keeping an eye on what you're up to next. So thank you. Thanks so much, Renee. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Creative Dive podcast. Music is by Psychic Pollution. If you enjoyed listening, please like, share, and subscribe. Catch you next time.